Well, over the last uh, several weeks, we've been going through a series in the book of Genesis looking at the life of Joseph. And when we left off last week, you'll recall that Joseph had just revealed himself to his brothers. He had just told them they had been coming before the prime minister of Egypt to buy food, and they finally find out this is their brother, their brother that they had sold into slavery more than 20 years earlier. And after the shock and the reunion, you'll recall that Joseph told them to go back to Canaan to get Jacob, their father, and to bring them back there to Egypt where he said he would take care of them, all of them and their family. They were outfitted with new garments. They were given provisions for the journey. You'll recall that there was a caravan of of royal wagons that were given to them. And as they went back, I want you to picture again in your mind what this journey would have looked like. Uh, we, we read the text, and really the best we can do is to picture a rural community with back dusty dirt roads. Remember that the uh, land was dying of famine. It was dry. It was dusty. It was very bleak. And all of a sudden, there's this line of black luxury SUVs, all tricked out, dark-tinted windows, coming down this backcountry road. And as it pulls into this struggling little town, they stop in front of the tent of Jacob the father. Now, Jacob, you'll recall, had sent Benjamin along with the brother. Simeon had been in jail in Egypt, and Jacob has anxiously been awaiting to see who would come home. Would Benjamin come back? Would Simeon be released? And he's 130 years old at this point, so he he struggles to come out of his tent, and he's blown away by the sight that he sees. Not only are all 11 boys standing there, but they're wearing brightly colored clothing. Do you remember how Joseph had clothed his brothers with new royal robes? And so again, think of the dark, stark uh, contrast where everybody's wearing ragged, worn-out clothing, and here are these guys in brand-new clothes standing in front of this line of luxury SUVs. Now, Jacob, uh, you'll recall, has, has worried about his boys in many ways. Some of these sons are the guys who robbed and looted Shechem. So as he sees all this stuff, he's thinking... Who did y'all rob this time? And and they're saying, no, 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 dad, listen, we're part of Pharaoh's posse. Uh, Pharaoh sent all this. And the reason he sent it is because your other son, Joseph, is alive. This is where the story picks up uh, here that we're looking at in Genesis 46. But as he hears this news in Genesis 45, 26, as they say, Joseph is still alive, dad. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And it says, but Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. Now, this word stunned literally means a jolt to his heart. Uh, Many of you will remember the old Sanford and Sons uh, TV show, where Red Fox was always grabbing his chest and going, it's the big one, Elizabeth, I'm coming home. And and here, this is the picture. Jacob is standing there, and suddenly he grabs his chest. He has a mini uh, jolt to his heart. Now, it's interesting. You know, all through the story, Jacob has been talking about dying of grief. Remember that? I mean, this is the guy that is always, woe is me. I'm going to go to the grave in mourning. Uh, And in here, the, the irony is it's almost the good news that does him in. Because he hears, your son is alive. And he gets this jolt to his heart. He's stunned. And, and why are we surprised? I mean, for 22 years, the other boys have led their dad to believe that Joseph is dead. Remember, they brought his torn and bloody garment to him back in chapter 37. And they said, hey, dad, do you recognize this? And so he's, he's been thinking for more than two decades, his son is dead. And now the only reason he believes these boys is because he, of what he sees, this caravan. It tells us in verses 27 through 28, and when they told him the, all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when, they, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now remember in Genesis 37, 35, when he's holding the bloody garment of his son, he says, I'm going to go down to the grave in mourning. But now his spirit revives. He's, he's ready for a grand reunion. There's going to be this trip to see his long lost son. And this is where we pick up in Genesis 46, 1. 
So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. That's a very significant moment. Two things I want you to notice. First, the name has switched back to Israel. Do you remember in a previous message we talked about how we've seen the name Jacob, Jacob, and suddenly it went to Israel, which was the covenant name that God had given to Jacob. You recall that there is a story behind the story. The story of Joseph is, is a wonderful story for us, but the real underlying theme in Joseph is about the line of promise. And we talked about this as we walked through the, the promise line, which began with Abraham, where God had promised to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them uh, descendants that would become a nation. And we saw how the, the line went to Isaac and then through the son uh, Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And Jacob then had 12 boys that you'll recall from two wives and two concubines. And here was the family tree. And we saw that among the sons, the line of promise would be carried through Judah. Jesus Christ is the ultimate part of the line of promise. And he's called the Lion of Judah. He comes from the line of Judah. And so this is the story that is going on here. And as Israel comes to Beersheba, this is a pinnacle part of the story. Uh, you'll, you'll notice if you look at Genesis 46, 8 through 27, we're not going to walk through all the names here. But what we find is the genealogy of the nation of Israel. At this point in its history, the nation of Israel uh, is 70 souls in number. You have Jacob and his sons and their sons, and that includes Joseph and his two sons who are in Egypt. It, it tells us there in verse 27 that the nation of Israel numbers 20, uh, 70 people and some uh, additional people in the household. And it all came from this. It all came from a barren couple, Abraham and Sarah, who were elderly and without children of their own. And what we see here is the beginning of the line of promise beginning to explode in growth. We may think that, well, 70 is not that big of a number, but God isn't done yet. Because what he is doing is he is taking this nation and he is moving them out of the land of Canaan to put them in the land of Egypt where they will be in an incubator. You remember in the earlier parts of this series, we saw where the Egyptians would say things like they couldn't eat bread with the Hebrews because this was loathsome. So what they're going to do is they're going to put these people over in Goshen, uh, a part of Egypt, but they're, going to, they're not going to intermarry and intermingle with them. And so what God is doing is protecting his people from intermingling with the nations around them. And there's going to be a period of 400 years where the people are there multiplying. There are 70 that go into Egypt and there will be millions that come out at the Exodus. And what we're at right now is the pinnacle part of the history of the nation. This is a hinge that the whole story turns on. It's not just about this moment where we're looking at this family. It's about the, the, the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. As they come to Beersheba, this is the southernmost part of the promised land. Maybe some of you are fans of the, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring movie with The Hobbit and other things, and in it, there's a point where in the Fellowship of the Ring, there's a scene where Samwise Gamgee stops and he tells Frodo this word. He says, this is it. If I take one more step, I will be the farthest away from home I've ever been. You see, Sam knew that passing that spot would be a break with the past. He would be moving away from his home and into a new future. And as Israel stops with his family at the, at the border... It's like when you're driving out of Texas and you see that sign that says you're leaving Texas and some of you are like, is this a good thing to do? Should I stop here? And, and what happens is Israel stops at the border at Beersheba and he says, we, we need to think this through. His name is Israel. The name Israel is the name that was given uh, as he was the one that the line of promise went forward with. And as that name was given, Genesis thirty-five twelve tells us this as well. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. You see, Jacob is the patriarch. He's the carrier of the line. And he recognizes this is the land of promise. God put his people in there and he says, I'm about to take the whole nation out of the land of promise. 
Ian Duggard says, uh, at this moment, um, famine to fortune sounded fabulous. Remember, they're starving in Canaan. Except that it involved the family going in what appeared to be the wrong direction, which was out of the promised land to live in Egypt. But as we look deeper in the scriptures, we see that Jacob was actually going in the right direction. He wasn't going against God's promise. He was actually within God's plan. Because if we go earlier in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, 13 through 14, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom whom they will serve, that's Egypt. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. So here we see the, the big story of God's redemption taking place. He's moving his people out of the land of promise. But what he's saying is they're going to come back. And that will happen in the book of Exodus. As the Exodus takes place 400 years later, as the nation comes out now numbering in the millions with the riches of Egypt. God reaffirms this is going to happen as we see in Genesis 46, 2 through 4. As Jacob stops, as he offers sacrifices, as he seeks the Lord, it says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. God says, look, Jacob, this is within my will. I want you to go. And your son, Joseph, that you're going to see, he's, he's going to close your eyes. You're going to die there in Egypt. But I want you to know that your, your family, the nation of Israel, will come back to this land. All that God reveals here happens. There will be 17 years more before Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies there in Genesis chapter 50, it describes the embalming of Jacob's body. And then it tells how it is brought back to the land of Israel. There's this 70 days of mourning. There's this enormous state funeral that takes place at the beginning of Genesis chapter 50. And Joseph's body will also ultimately come back to the promised land. Uh, it tells us in uh, Exodus thirteen nineteen, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. So again, we see the greater story that is happening at this moment in time. God doesn't outline for Jacob the slavery, the bondage the Jews will face, nor does he give any details of the Exodus. He simply says, Jacob, I am God. I'm in control. And that's enough for Jacob. Friends, I wonder if that's enough for us. In those times where we're faced with a road that is forking and we're not sure which way to go, in those times where we're dealing with difficult decisions, do we say, you know, I can't see beyond the next hill, but God can. God is the God of history. The word history is spelled his story. And do we look at history that may be coming or what has happened in the past and say, God has been faithful in the past. God has been faithful in the present. I know I can trust him in the future. You know, as believers, so many of us say, look, I know where I'm going when I die. My eternal destiny is set. We trust God for eternity, but how many of us struggle with trusting him for the next day of our lives? You know, sometimes there are going to be roadblocks. Sometimes there's going to be detours. I want to remind you as we've looked at Joseph, there was 13 years of waiting on God. There was times of slavery. There was prison. There were two pits he was put in. There were, there were all these detours, but all throughout God was faithful before he was promoted to the palace as prime minister. And if you're facing a fork in the road type of decision, uh, we can learn a lot from looking at Jacob at this moment. As he faces an unknown future, he trusts it to a known God. And he says, God, you know what is going on. He stopped. He, he, he sought the Lord. It wasn't a quick prayer. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? He told the whole family, we're going we're gonna to wait here. We're going to offer sacrifices. We're going to listen until God makes his direction clear. And we can do that as well. We may not have a vision where God audibly speaks to us or appears, but we have something even better because we have this. We have his written word, and in this, he reveals so much of his will for us. There are so many things that, that we ask God about that he says it's already in there. Just read it. Listen to me. 
We can talk to others who are walking with God. We can seek the wisdom of others, the insight others can give us. You know, there's the proverb that sometimes you can't see the forest because of the trees. We get so locked into what is right in front of us that we can't see the bigger picture. And this is where it's good sometimes to say to somebody who is disengaged a little from the situation, let them give us some direction and wisdom if they are walking with God. Chuck Swindoll says, Jacob illustrates that there is much, much more to consider in making a move than money or greater comfort or ease. As children of God, we are to listen to the voice of God and ask, is God in this? Does this please him? Remember that Jacob had been told, your favorite son, your beloved son, Joseph, that you thought was dead for two decades, he's in Egypt and he wants you to come see him, dad. He, he, was, he was suffering a famine in this land and there was feasting that was waiting for him in Egypt. And it would have been very easy for Jacob just to say, hey, there's, there's no question about the decision. But he said, I need to set aside the things of the world for the moment and I need to ask God, is this what you want me to do? And as he weighed those things, as he sought the Lord, God confirmed for him the things that, that could come. You see, what he was weighing is, what is the cost? We, we look at it and we say, Roger, what's the question? Well, Jacob said, listen, we're in, we're in Canaan, a monotheistic place. We may be a small struggling group, but we know the true God. And in Egypt, this cosmopolitan city that has all the riches and the wonders of the world and also has this pantheon of pagan gods, there are going to be temptations when we go there. And, and not only are there temptations for the family, but think about Jacob. He's 130 years old at this moment. His whole life, what he's known is behind him. And he says, where I'm going is going to be a completely different change. Everything will be different. As you think about your own life, uh, how many of us kind of like things the way they are? Mark Twain once said, the only one who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. And then here is Jacob facing uh, a complete change of everything that he knows. And so he, there's a temptation to stay where he is. But as he seeks God, God says, Jacob, I want you to go. And so he says, yes, Lord, I will go. And in verses 5 through 7, he arises from Beersheba. He brings his family to Egypt. Now, as they get near the city, we pick up in verse 28 where we're told that Judah is sent ahead to get directions. Now, notice Joseph doesn't say, uh, here's a map. Or, hey, uh, one of you guys go show them where the, the new place is. Joseph, it says in verses 29 through 30, prepared his chariot and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. When it says he prepared his chariot, I mean, again, imagine the glory. This is the moment. This is the pomp and circumstance. This is the royal chariot. This is Joseph in, in the, the finery of his office. He has the entourage with him, the soldiers. Remember how Pharaoh said, everybody will go before you and say, bow the knee, bow the knee. I mean, this is a parade. This makes the Battle of Flowers Parade look like nothing. I mean, the, so Joseph is coming in all his glory to meet his father Israel. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a long time. That's Jacob. And then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. What an amazing moment of grace. A father who thought his son was dead for more than 22 years gets to see his son. He doesn't just see him, he holds him. It says the two are holding on to each other for a long, long time. How long did they cry? Probably till the tears ran out. There's this moment of celebration. My son who was dead is alive. And as, as he holds his son and, and he sees him in all his glory, you know, some of you here this morning may be longing for a family reunion like this. You have a parent that you're estranged from. As a parent, you have a child who has run away from you and the Lord, a prodigal son or daughter. And you may be saying, oh, if I could only have this. You know, in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11 and following, there's this, the parable of the prodigal son, the story of a wayward son who realized his sin and returned to his father and was forgiven and reconciled. And if you're in a, mo if you're in a, in a family like this where, where there is a, a broken, fractured relationship, I want you to pray. 
want you to pray for your son, your daughter, your parent, your friend, whatever the relationship is that is broken, and ask God to do his healing work. I've shared with you in the past the, the story of me and my father. And that was a, a 40, 30 plus year journey of, of brokenness and, and reconciliation. And God was the one who, who made that happen. And if you're in one of those relationships, if you missed last Sunday, we, we walked through the ABCs of forgiveness. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon that talks about the road to reconciliation we can walk and the steps we can take to help bring about a reconciliation. Now, maybe you're saying, well, you know, my, my loved one has already died. It's impossible. The good news is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following tells us that if, we, if they were a believer and we are a believer, we will have a reunion in heaven. There's a time coming where it says that the dead in Christ will rise first and the, then we will rise as well and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There is a reunion coming in heaven with all of our lost loved ones who know the Lord. As we look at what's happening here with Jacob and his family, it, it only gets better because Genesis chapter 47, verses 1 through 6 tell us this. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brother and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. Now, this isn't a surprise. Remember, we've seen where Joseph has already talked to his boss, his master, and, and lined everything up. But he says, They're here. And he took, Joseph takes five men from among his brothers. There's 12 sons. There's now Joseph and five. So half the brothers are presented to Pharaoh. You know, you don't want to overwhelm the most powerful man in the world. He doesn't need to meet all your brothers at once. So he brings them in. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Joseph, as you read back through the chapter before, has prepared his brothers. He said, look, this is protocol. This is how you talk to them. They didn't listen to Joseph. Joseph said, look, our, our, your occupation's kind of loathsome to the king. He didn't tell him to lie. He said, let's just use a different word. But these boys walk in, they're starstruck. They forget everything they were told. And they say, we're shepherds. Now, it says, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father, settle your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. If you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Oh, you guys are shepherds. Guess what? I have a position, a job for you guys. You know, just a short time ago, remember, they were starving shepherds in Canaan. They didn't have food to eat. Their flocks were starving. Now they are in a place where they've been told, your family, you get the best of the land. Your flocks uh, will be in Goshen where the Nile overflows and the land is fertile and lush. Uh, and not only will you be taken care of, but you have a position on my payroll. You will become the royal keepers of the flocks. They have everything. They have a place to stay. They have a position on Pharaoh's payroll, which is about to explode in size. Look at verses 15 through 17. Remember, there's been this famine that is ongoing. Joseph was used by God to store away seven years of plenty because there were seven years of famine. We're now two years into the famine. Joseph had told his brothers, look, you guys better move here and let me take care of you because if you don't, you're going to become impoverished. Coming here to buy grain and going back, I know how this all ends. People are going to end up with nothing. All their money's going to run out which is where we are in the story. The people have been coming, spending their money. They've run out of cash. And now verses 15 through 17 tell us, when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they barter. They trade their animals for food. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and for the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So now we're into year three of the seven-year famine. 
Now, as I said, Joseph warned his brothers, look, you guys, this is going to be long and hard. You're going to run out of everything. And this is what's happening to the people in the land. Now, Joseph comes along and uh, he says, I'm going to take care of you and the family. Now, it's very important for us to note the integrity of Joseph. He's not tapping the till. He's not stealing from Pharaoh and saying, hey, I'm making you rich beyond your belief, so I'm setting up my own little slush fund here to take care of my family. Remember, Pharaoh has said, Joseph, give your family the best. And so he's following his master's orders. Then in Genesis 47, 11 through 12, it says, So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and brothers and all his household with food according to their little ones. As we talk about Joseph's integrity, it doesn't just show up at this moment. I want you to remember what we saw earlier in Genesis 39.6. There it said that Potiphar, remember Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard that Joseph served under and became the steward of the house before he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? Another mark of his integrity is he wouldn't sleep with his master's wife. It said there in Genesis 39.6 that Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. The same thing happened in Genesis 39:22 through 23 when he was put in prison. And the chief jailer said, Joseph, you're, you're a guy that I don't have to come behind and watch. I trust you with everything. And he ran the whole prison. Joseph was a man of integrity. Nobody worried about what he did, what he said. So as he's conducting business for Pharaoh here, he doesn't take one penny and put it over in his own side account. The books are clean. And not only are the books clean, but the way he does business is is done with integrity. If you're here today and you're saying, well, I'm in a business and it's a dog-eat-dog world and the only way you get ahead is by crushing others, I want you to look at what Joseph does here. Because as people are coming before him, they are at his mercy. He, He can set any interest rate. It's like payday loans that rip people off with these exorbitant amounts. Joseph could have set any interest rate. He could have done anything. And what are the people going to do? They said, we're going to die. You set the terms. We'll sign in blood. There's nothing we can do. And as Joseph is there, he's responsible for, for making a profit for his master, the king. But he also recognizes his responsibility to care for the people of Egypt. And so what he does is he sets up uh, a system of sharecropping. He sets up a system where he will take care of the people that we're about to see in a moment. But what I want you to focus on for a moment here is whether he was in the prison or the palace, Joseph was the same. He was a man of integrity. The word integrity comes from the Latin word integros. It means entire or complete. It means that we are the same in thought and action. It means all areas of our life function the same. And whether Joseph was the one serving others or he was now the one who had others serving him as the prime minister, he functioned the same. He didn't take advantage of people. He didn't take advantage of the the resources at his disposal. He shows integrity as well as his heart for the people. In verses 23 through 24, he sets up a sharecropping system that will benefit Pharaoh because the money runs out, the livestock is gone, and now he begins to acquire the land. And the people ultimately run out of everything but their own lives, and they say, we will be your slaves. We will indenture ourselves to you. And he sets up a system where he says, okay, this percentage goes to Pharaoh, and it's not exorbitant. In that day, it was usually triple the amount that you see there. And instead, what he does is he says, Pharaoh's going to take 20%, and you guys keep the rest. I'm giving you the, the seed to, to fertilize the land, uh, to feed the land, before the people were all in little cities, and he spreads them out all over. This, again, was part of the success of Egypt. And, and he puts the people on the land and he says, you give a percentage back and then you keep the rest to feed your family, to store away, to sell, so that you can eventually get out of slavery. And the people, as they hear what Joseph is offering them, look at verse 25. You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. This is like um, when I was a police officer. If I could get somebody to thank me when I wrote him a ticket, I knew that I had done a pretty good job. And these guys are saying, look, we're going to be slaves. Thank you. 
because they're recognizing all the alternatives were a lot worse. They knew what Joseph could have done to them. And they said, bless you for being the man that you are. Now, as things are becoming worse for many, the Egyptians, remember that things are getting better and better for God's people. Joseph and his family are in the land. They're not running out of money. Joseph is bankrolling his brothers, his father's uh, grandchildren, everybody in the family. He's got them on a, a payroll system. And again, it wasn't this cheap nepotism. They were qualified to watch over the herds that were multiplying. And in verses 7 through 8, it tells us this. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? He's, he's looking at this guy. He's going, how old are you? And you're thinking, well, that's kind of rude. No, it's not, actually. And that day, age was esteemed. And this was a polite conversation starter. This was an opportunity to let Jacob brag a little. And he says, how many years have you lived? And remember that the, the moment that we have here is the meeting of the powers, You have the patriarch of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, before Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world at that moment. Now, you're thinking, well, this is kind of imbalanced here. I mean, Pharaoh's over the whole land. This guy's over a motley crew of 70. But remember that God is in the equation. And so here you have the moment with the patriarch of God's people given an open mic to tell Pharaoh anything he wants. I mean, here's an opportunity to say to Pharaoh, let me tell you about the Lord I serve. Let me tell you about my God who has cared for my family and me. Let me tell you about the things that God has done in my life, how I wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night. Let me tell you about the visions that I've had. The one right as I was coming in at Beersheba and Pharaoh would have said, hey, common thing to talk about. I had some dreams too. Your son here told me what God said and it's worked out well. Tell me more about your Lord. But he doesn't do any of that. He's, he's given this opportunity to, to just talk about the Lord. But he shuts everything down by being down in the mouth. Look at what he says in verse 9. The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. You're Pharaoh sitting on the throne going, well, that's kind of a downer. Uh, Next. I mean, have you noticed the theme of death with Jacob? This, This guy back in Genesis 37, 35, when he saw his son's torn coat, he said, I will go down to my grave in mourning. We can, we can understand that. He's just received word. His beloved son is dead. He's hit. He's hurt. He's mourning. But then we get to 42.38 and he says, you know, I'm going to die if anything happens to Benjamin. And when he hears the great news that Joseph is alive, what's his response? He says in 45.28, I'll go to Egypt and see him before I die. And then at the moment of reunion, he he embraces his son. And what does he say in Genesis 46.30? Now that I've seen you, I can die. And you're going, dad, enough with the death, right? You know, there was an epitaph on a tombstone that I read about once. It said, I told you I was sick. (laughs) Great way to be remembered, right? I told you I was sick. Is that how we live our life? Do we point people to that moment when we're going to die? Look, life is short. It's, It's terrible. And then we die. Oh, great. Or do we point people to God? to the one who has power over death. I mean, here is Jacob before Pharaoh, the guy worshiping all the false gods, the guy who thinks he's a god himself, and he could have said, let me tell you about God. It's like when Paul walked through the city and he saw the the shrine to the unknown god. Paul didn't say, you pagan people, what's wrong with you? He says, hey, let let me tell you about this unknown god. I mean, here was a perfect opportunity for Jacob to leverage his position as patriarch of the family. Open mic, but he fumbles it. With Jacob, there's this theme of death. God has already given this guy 130 years. 
And he's got 17 more to go. He's going to die at 147 years old. Now he's saying, my days are shorter than that of my father's. And he's right. His grandfather Abraham lived to be 175. And Isaac, his father, lived to be 180. But is 147 a pretty long life? Anybody? I don't know about you. I don't want to make 147. I'm voting for the rapture that we all get to go this afternoon. How about right now? That'd be great. But, but as you look at this, he's been given this long life, and it wasn't as bad as he said either. I mean, just start where he is at the moment. Remember, he is in the palace. He's before Pharaoh. And who's, who's at Pharaoh's right hand? Oh, yeah, that's Joseph, his son that he thought was dead. There's my boy. <laughs> you did good, son, right? There's five other sons in the room. There's six of 12. In the Bible, it says that if you had seven sons, you were blessed beyond measure. This guy's got 12. He, he's missing all the blessings. He could have said, you know, just a week ago, I was back in Canaan wondering, what am I going to eat? And now I've been told I've gone from famine to feasting. I'm in the lap of luxury. I've been told that my retirement is taken care of. No worries, nothing to, to ever concern myself about again. Now, I'm not saying Jacob's life has been one party after another. I mean, there's been some hard things in his life. Remember, his father had a favored son too, and his name was Esau. And so he wasn't the favorite with his father. And, and he stole his brother's birthright. Remember that? And then the mother said, look, he's going to kill you, so you need to run away. And so they sent him, uh, she sent him over to where her family used to live. And there he met Laban, his future father-in-law. And that guy was a work. Jacob's name meant schemer. And, and these guys were equally matched because remember, he's the guy that switched the, the girls on the wedding night and he ended up with Leah instead of Rachel. And, and then Jacob, I mean, Laban was always trying to rip them off along the way. I mean, he's had some hard things that have happened. His, his favorite wife was barren. He went through the struggles of infertility. And then she died, uh, giving birth to the second son. But there were two sons. And, and Joseph was the favorite. And this guy that he thought had been dead, at the age of 17, he thought he's gone. And now he sees him alive, and he's going to get 17 more years with his son, double the time that he had before. And so there's so much that Jacob could have been thankful for. So many things that, that he could have looked around the room and said, things are great. But instead, he looked around the room and he lamented his life. You know, what Jacob needed at that moment was a new set of glasses to give him 50-20 vision. And you're saying, oh, don't you mean 20-20 vision? No, I mean 50-20 vision. Because 50-20 vision is from Genesis 50. There Joseph said to his brothers, as for you... These are the guys who sold him into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You see, Joseph had 50-20 vision. He didn't look back on life and, and say, I've got all these regrets. He could have said at that moment, you know, Dad, let me, let me tell you about a hard life. Let me, let me tell you about what hard things are. He could have said, I'm the guy who was hated by all the brothers. Five of them are standing there in the room going, you know. And, uh, hey, Dad, I'm the guy who was beaten and stripped, thrown into a pit, carried away as a slave. I was falsely accused. I was put in prison. I went through all this hardship. I was forgotten there in the jail. I mean, Dad, you want to talk about hard things? My life has been a lot shorter than yours, and, and, and I can match you. I walked uphill to school both ways in the snow you know, but he doesn't. What Joseph does is he has 50-20 vision. And that's what we need to do. We need to learn to see things in a different light by seeing them through the perspective of eternity. You know, one thing that Jacob did get right is the way he described his life in verse 9. There he said, the years of my sojourning are. The word sojourn by definition means a temporary stay. You see, what Jacob did understand is this life isn't all there is. My, my time here on earth is really just a temporary stay. You know, if our life here on earth is all there is and this world is our only home, then it would make sense 
for us to get upset when things don't go our way. It would make sense for us to claw our way to the top and step on people and crush people and grab, as the old beer commercial used to say, all the gusto you can. Because if this world is all there is, you better get all you can when you can because when this life is over, it's over. But friends, that's not the case. What the Bible tells us, for those of us who are Christians, it says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship, our place of residence, where we belong, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the non-believer will live for eternity as well. But their place, their residence, will be in a place called the lake of fire, not home in heaven. For us who are believers, what God says is, you're just sojourning on this earth. This is just a temporary stay. Let me ask you, have you ever been on a road trip somewhere and you had to make an unexpected stop in a, in a little town uh, where all the hotels were full or there weren't great accommodations and you ended up staying in one of those you know, nightmare motels? Anybody had that experience? Yeah, I've been there. And so, you know, when you go into one of those rooms and you kind of open the door and you go, really? And you walk in, do you sit there and lament that, gosh, this this was a great color scheme in the 40s. I mean, it's horrible. And you go in the bathroom and you're going, you know, I'm going to run down to the corner store and buy a new shower curtain because this one is so filthy and ripped. I, You know, do you do any of that? No. You just go, okay, look, this is... <laughs> Honey, sorry, look, this is all there was. It's the middle of the night, huge storm. Uh, we'll lay sheets over the sheets because we don't want to live, you know, sleep on those. But it's okay. We're, we're, we're only going to be here temporarily, right? It's just till the storm passes. It's just till we get a few hours of sleep and we can get back on the road where we can go home. And that's the perspective we need to have in life. When hard things happen to us, when things are not the way we want, we need to just say, you know, we're just passing through. This place isn't our home. It's only temporary. And there is a place that we are going. There is a place that we are going, which is home to heaven. And so when the hard things happen here, we need to recognize it's just a sojourn. The Apostle Paul had this perspective. He said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says to those who are being persecuted, he says, friends, we are just passing through. There's a day coming where God will turn the famine of this world into a time of feasting in heaven. A time of feasting in heaven. And it all happens because of what God's son, Jesus Christ, did for us what we're going to remember now as we come to the communion table. Because as we come to the communion table, what we are reminded of is what God did for us where he left his favored position to take a place of famine, a place of hardship for you and me so that we could be made a part of the family of God. What 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us is this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, all of us here have gone through hard times, hard things that have happened in our life, times of famine, times of failure where we've sinned. We've all made mistakes. We've all been those who are facing a time of famine. But God, who was in a favored position, took our place. He went from favored to famished to take my place and yours on the cross, to pay the penalty of death for our sins so that we could be made a part of the family of God, so that we could have a favored position, so that we could be invited to the banquet table in heaven one day to sit down as sons and daughters of the king. And as we come to this table before us, this communion table, it reminds us of why we are welcome in heaven, how we were given that opportunity. It was through the one who was rich who became poor, the one who was perfect who took my place and yours to pay the penalty of death for our sins. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. I invite you to recognize that God has given you uh, the opportunity to come into not just uh, the land of Egypt, 
to the lap of luxury, but something so much better, something we can't even imagine. A place at the banquet table in heaven as a son or daughter, a part of the family of God. And it's given to us through the sacrifice of God's son who gave his life. If you're somebody who's never turned to Jesus to be your savior, I invite you today to stop and say to God, God, I am a sinner. I recognize I failed. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I owe a penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you've never turned from your sin to Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you to do so now. In a moment, the men are going to pass the elements. You're going to see a cup representing the blood of Jesus. You're going to see a piece of bread representing his body. And I want you to say to God, God, I'm accepting your death in my place. I'm taking this cup of your blood to wash away my sins. Jesus, I'm accepting your body as the sacrifice for me, the one who went to the cross and took my place. And if you will do that, the Bible says you will be made a part of the family of God, that you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And for the rest of us who have received that great gift of new life in the past, I want you to take and hold these elements and say to God, thank you. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for taking me from a place of famine to feasting. So take this time just to talk to God, to confess any sins you have, and hold the elements, and we'll take them together. Men, will you serve us, please?
as John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ coming to be baptized. He pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we hold in our hand, this piece of bread, represents the perfect and permanent sacrifice. God's sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away my sin and yours. Eat it in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. It's a cup that is so much more than the juice that is there. What it represents is the blood of Jesus. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. We had to have a perfect and permanent sacrifice given. Jesus Christ took our place so that we could have his peace. And what we hold here is his uh, representation of his blood that has washed away our sins and made us white as snow. The blood of Jesus, drinking in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your story of redemption. A story that we see through the life of Joseph and his family were a family that was fractured and broken and beyond what looked like earthly hope of reconciliation. You, you restored that family. You had Joseph forgive his brothers. You, you brought a long lost son home. And as we think of Jacob being stunned by the news, it's, it's a reminder of the disciples who on that first morning heard the news that the tomb was empty. And just like Jacob, they, they couldn't believe it. They were stunned and they had, they had to see evidence for themselves. Father, we thank you that on this side of the story, we, we know how it ends. We know not only that you indeed, Jesus, came and paid that penalty of death and then rose from the dead, giving us the gift of new life, but we know, Father, that this life is not all there is, that we're only sojourning here, and one day we will be home with you in heaven. We thank you, Jesus, for taking our place so that we could have a place at that banquet table in heaven as sons and daughters of God, those who are forgiven and reconciled. We thank you, Lord, for that great gift of grace. May we go into the world and share it with others who need to hear about it. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.